All right, good morning, family. I'm Ryan, one of the pastors here. I'm going to tell you a little bit uh, about myself this morning. Uh, I got to preach in Alito this morning with them, and I got to tell them. I'm going to tell you a few things. Some of you know more me more than others, but I tell you this because uh, this is a personal text this morning. When Paul's talking about very personal to him, and, and so I'm going to weave some of these things together, but I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. Two of them include racial tension from my history, and another one includes some current tension in my life, and I'll just tell you. So I grew up about two hours west of here in Clyde, Texas, which is a small, rural, predominantly white West Texas town. And uh, while I was growing up there, uh, I remember, you know, becoming a, a boy. Uh, what I mean by that is becoming a boy where I thought, hey, there's girls around, and hey, it's homecoming, and you can buy them things and, like, hang out with them and be together with them. It's a really cool thing. And so uh, I remember, like, hey, we're going to actually do the legit thing and buy the, the homecoming mom, right, you know, for this gal. Like, you know, it costs $50, it seemed like. It probably cost three. Uh, and then your mom would make it. And so it's, yeah, but we're trying to do that. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this for the first time ever. I invite someone to homecoming and, and uh, do this thing. And I remember... I told my mom about it and, uh, um, and my dad about it. And I just remember there was pushback from one of my parents. I won't tell you who, but there was pushback from my parents about like, now you shouldn't, you, sh- you shouldn't invite that girl. And it didn't, didn't make sense to me until like clicked like, oh, she's Mexican. You can't hang out with that gal because of what she looks like, because of her ethnicity. And I felt that tension of like, what? You know, as a fifth grader, sixth grader, like, really? I can't, I can't ask her to go homecoming with me because of this? And then speed up a couple years later, and I moved from Clyde to San Antonio, Texas. And that was a culture shock, uh, just a big change. So predominantly white to not small rural West Texas town to a big public school. And, and all my friends were, were uh, black. And I just remember uh, enjoying the relationships and, and uh, uh, of, of having these friends in my life. But, but still, there was tension. Tension with one of my parents where, um, you know, my friends would come over, and if they left a mess, my, my parent wouldn't connect it to kid being messy. It would be this demographic of people is being messy. Do you, do you feel that tension with me? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, these people do this. And I was like, what? Like, where did this come from? I didn't know that. You know that tension. And then when I'm 16, Jesus saves me, turns my world upside down. And a little bit later, I feel called. I feel called to to ministry, called to what this is. And over time, God figures that out for me. Of Oh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 2, to to pastor, to shepherd, to elder. Okay, I feel called to that. I want to do that. And so just in, in personally telling you about me, this is what Paul's doing. He's going to tell you who he is. He's talking to people that he knows very well, that he loves, and he's going to reiterate some things that have happened in his life with them and get pretty personal. And so Ephesians 3, I want you to see it with me. We're going to look at the first 13 verses this morning. So Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, grab one. If you don't own a Bible, take one forever. Let it be yours. But Ephesians 3, I want you to see this, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you have heard about, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you. 
The mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've briefly written above. By reading this, you're able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in our other generations as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And what is it? The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 7, I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Now, I see that, that little kind of separation verse between verse 1 and 2. You should see Paul, if you know Paul at all, Paul sometimes liked to, uh, you know, take one sentence and make it one paragraph, right? Sometimes he also likes to stop himself and do a parenthetical remark or a parenthetical uh, 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 dictionary, what I'm looking for, definition, right? We do that. I do that sometimes where there's a word that maybe we don't all know. So just parenthetically kind of say it real quick just to define it. Uh, but he doesn't do it real quick, right? He goes from 2 to verse 13 are in a parenthetical remark about his life and his life with them. And then he gets to what, what really seems like he's getting to, right? Look at verse 14. You'll understand what I'm saying. For this reason, I, Paul, 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 back to 14. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, right? So what he's doing is he's going to pray, but he stops before he tells them that he's praying for them. He tells them about what's happening and what has happened. Jesus has called Paul to minister to the Gentiles, to, to spearhead the missionary work to the Gentile world. Now, I've told you before, just anyone that's ain't Jewish, that's what Gentile means, right? And that who he was, he was the minister to all the nations. He's the spearhead to go out to anyone that's not Jewish. But this ministry, he was told, would include suffering. From the beginning, after Jesus saved Paul, he told Ananias this about Paul, Acts 9. But the Lord said to him, go, for this man, Paul, is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. <clears throat> I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. How much? I'm going to show Paul, this is Jesus speaking, how much he's going to suffer for my name. And you know what? Paul was willing to suffer for the name. Paul was willing to suffer on behalf of Jesus. The glory of Jesus had so wrecked his soul that he was willing to give his life for the master. He even rejoices in his sufferings. This isn't masochistic, just enjoying pain, but he rejoices in his sufferings because of what it means for the Ephesians, what it means for fellow brothers and sisters, for, for their joy and their maturity. So he rejoices, it's Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. Uh, that is not redemptive sacrifice. Jesus has paid the redemptive sacrifice for us. What he's saying is that in ministering and following Jesus, he's going to suffer like Jesus did for the body, for us, for the people of God. I, verse 25, have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. What is it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's dying to himself and being afflicted for others' relationship with Jesus. And so he rejoices in it. You know what what I'm saying? He's in prison right now in a dank, dark little hole underground with probably just a a tiny, not a a sewer cap, maybe a tiny uh, little uh, golf hole. That's what I was trying to think of something. That was it. I'm sorry. But a tiny little hole where he could, that's all he could see. That's all the sunlight that could get into him. He's in prison in this very moment writing this letter to people that he, he went to. Acts 17. Spent two years in and out with them, telling them about Jesus, helping them to grow in Jesus. And he has suffered lashes, beatings, mockings, and now even imprisonment. And he's looking forward to being the smart man he is. The execution that inevitably, inevitably waits him. And he says, in all of this, I rejoice for your sake. Why? Because he's a servant of the gospel. That's verse 7 of Ephesians 3. I'm a servant of the gospel. It means he's entrusted with the good news. He's been entrusted with the good news like an Olympic flame. You can't let it go out, right? If you're carrying the Olympic flame, you can't let it go out. If you, get out, if you let it go out, we're all going to boo you and the Olympics are over with. What I'm saying is he's entrusted to protect that flame. Why? So that light will go into the darkness and then it'll spread to the nations like a wildfire. So we don't go looking for suffering, but we shouldn't be surprised by it. It comes with the territory. Soldiers can expect to be shot at by the enemy. ER nurses ER nurses, they can expect to gather a bunch of stories that they can tell uh, laughingly at campfires later, right? That's what ER nurses have, a lot of stories, a lot of wild stuff that's happened there, and then they can tell you, and you can all laugh about it. It's wild. Golfers, golfers can expect a golf ball to, like, land in their region where they're at, their area, you know? Maybe someone didn't say four, but, hey, it's a golf ball. If a grenade bounced into the sand trap beside you, that would be surprising, right? Like, I should do something. But if it's a golf ball... You can expect it, right? If you're a Christian, it's not a grenade. It's a typical golf ball. It's suffering. You can expect it. You can expect suffering as a Christian. Following Jesus will involve suffering. He told us so. He told us to count the cost. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you're of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is Jesus speaking. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Welcome to life with Jesus. Paul, Peter, and John add to this. Peter says, the devil is prowling around like a lion, a roaring lion, 
seeking something to tear apart. That's you. I don't know if you think it's another demographic. It's us. Roaming, seeking, waiting, sniffing, hunting to tear us apart. And some of you are not Christians and you're checking this out. Or you might say you are a Christian because you grew up in the church or the Christian family. But to get down to it, you don't have genuine affections for Jesus. His, his cosmic grace hasn't collided with your heart. You haven't been made new. You don't have a new heart. And so I'm just be honest with you. Jesus is the greatest, most beautiful being you've ever heard of and who's ever existed. But being in his crew doesn't mean ease or the American dream. Jesus is not like MC Hammer just handing out wads of hundreds to every second and third cousin. Being in Jesus' entourage is intoxicating because you're in his presence, not because of all the little gifts he gives you. So it's intoxicating to be in Jesus' presence, but also following Jesus means it's difficult. It's really difficult. The world system will no longer love you or fully accept you. Count the cost. John says it this way, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters. You're like, where's Ryan get his language? The Bible. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Some of you are newer Christians, and you need to hear this as well. You need to hear the cost. And receive it. And don't feel the pressure to make Christianity cool. At a fundamental level, the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdom of rebellion against God, and it's just not cool. When someone is rebelling against something, they never think that thing is cool or trendy. They despise it or have an indifferent posture towards it. So we don't have to spin our wheels trying to be the cool Christian to our coworkers and friends. It's not possible. It's an oxymoron. <laughs> it's not cool Christians. Sorry, I see you. You're not that cool. I have two long sleeve shirts on. I'm really hot right now. And I'm also not that cool. I have a button-up shirt underneath a button-up shirt. I am not that cool. <laughs> the kingdom of God clashes with the kingdom of this world. So why try to present and make everything like cool that we're cool and we're trying to win people to coolness? I don't care about winning people to anything other than Jesus. I want them to know Jesus. Coolness will not overwhelm their heart with the love of Christ that will change them into a new being. Jesus will. So that's what I want to win them to. But if you're a new Christian, you need to hear this. Loving Jesus looks like loving your coworkers instead of loving their opinion of you. If what matters most to you is what they think about you, then you'll try to be the cool one. And you know what coolness means at the end of the day? It usually means coldness to Christ because you've got pulled into a syncretistic relationship with the world rather being faithful to Jesus. 
2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the truth is you might be experiencing this more and more as people change in your life. What maybe seemed like a familial relationship united on Jesus in the past is now like a weird relationship where it's awkward to talk about spiritual items. Now it's tension. Now it's like, oh, you, you still believe that or you really believe that or that's what you're going with? Or maybe it's a business. Maybe it's your business where you work and the, the standards of morality have been so... And you could work there with good conscience. But now it's shifted. And you're left thinking, like, I'm the outsider. I'm the weird one. And I can't go with this. What, what is it like to stay faithful to Jesus when this is my new place? I didn't even switch jobs. The whole place has just changed, though. But I'm still here. Or maybe being a Christian in your relationships has gone from a a neutral reaction, people don't really care. But now it's gone to a negative one. They're like, ugh, gross. Bigot, you believe this? What about that? Really? How old-fashioned are you? What year did you grow up in? They didn't really care in the past, but now you smell a little funny. You got that Christian stink on you. It's like, oh, I don't know if they, I don't know if I want to hang around this guy or this gal anymore. Do not be surprised. Do not be surprised and do not let your desire for approval lead you to back down. Stand firm, follow Jesus even when it stings, that's when it's sacrificial. Even when it means loss, even when it affects your bank account, even when it changes relationships, I'm going to be kind and genuine and love. Uh, I'm going to be kind and generous and loving to every person in this world. So I'm not saying be derogatory, condescending. That's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm saying I am not going to let other people pull me away from the one that has come after me and who holds me and who keeps me. This was Paul's resolute attitude, empowered by the Spirit of God, willing to suffer for the good news of Jesus. God had revealed the mystery of Jesus to Paul. Now Paul's an ambassador, a herald, a servant of the gospel. And he's excited to tell the Ephesians again this mystery. The Gentiles are co-heirs. And I think we get this. So let me tell you another story. In ninth grade in San Antonio, my friends, my friends were all black, played basketball all the time. That's what we did. We're hanging out at lunch at the cafeteria. And there's just this memory seared in my mind of us being in the cafeteria, eating lunch. I think we all got done. We're all just chopping up, laughing, hanging out. And my, probably one of my best friends, AJ, uh, leans back in his chair and a gal is walking by. And while, when he leans back, it's at the perfect time where he accidentally bumps her. And it wasn't even a big bump. It's just like a little one. She, she could have kept going. She chose violence. She, Sorry that took the weight out of the actual moment. But, but what she did was uh, her face changed, scoured, lips curled, and her tone went very harsh, and she called him a racial slur. And I was like heated. 
Like, this is my friend. Like, I've been to this dude's house. We hang out. We talk all the time. We talk about life and relationships and girls and basketball and basketball and some hip-hop and basketball. But, but I just looked around like, what's going to happen? Who's going to say something? And what I saw was AJ just leaned back forward and just looked straight forward. And I remember all my friends didn't really do anything either. It just like shut them down. And I was like, hey, I'm going to talk to someone. And I remember, and we don't have to go into what I said or how that all went down, but, but that's a little bit of the kind of animosity that's between Jews and Gentiles. And now Paul the most Jewish of the Jews is telling these Gentiles that they aren't wild, dirty street dogs, that they're now co-heirs in the kingdom of God. That's how you should feel this. Why? Because you ain't Jewish. I know most of you. You, we are all recipients of this. We are all benefactors of this. This was us. If you lived back in the day, Paul, pre-conversion, would have called you a derogatory name. He would have called you a filthy dog. And then Jesus saved him, changed his heart, and now what does he see? And what does he communicate? (laughs) Now we're co-heirs. Now we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. Now we're both citizens in the kingdom of God. Now we're both loved, accepted, and fully the father's children before him. We're co-heirs. Jesus died tearing down the hostility between us and the Father and us and one another. And so Jesus, in tearing that down, has then made us one. Ephesians 2, we saw Jesus brought us peace. He made us one new humanity. And then he gave us direct access to the Father. In Christ, we are one. In Christ, we don't major on our minor distinctions, but major on the resurrection. Different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different incomes won't keep us apart or tear us apart because the Messiah walked out of the grave. That's of what's first importance. And we're going to major on that. That he died and rose to unite us as one, and we experience that unity deeper and more as we collectively look to Jesus. Two weeks ago, I talked a little bit about racism. Let me say it again clearly. Racism in our hearts will die as we worship Jesus rather than worshiping ourselves. Superiority, racism, partiality is all rooted in us worshiping ourselves. So we want to die. If you want to worship out of this, worship Jesus and see who he's made you by just creation, a human stamped with the image of God with equal dignity, value, and worth. Then also he's recreated you in the image of Jesus, given you a new heart and stamped you, sealed you with the spirit of God. So (laughs) Ephesians 4 would then tell us 
that the tension will die between us in experience. That love will grow between us in experience as we worship Jesus and humble ourselves before him at the cross because we didn't accomplish this. We didn't make this family. Jesus did. It's this beautiful tapestry. This be what I told you a couple weeks ago. This beautiful quilt that he's done. He's made us together. Just dazzling. And not as it dazzling the world around us. It's actually going beyond that. And that's what he says in Ephesians 3.8. That this tapestry of Revelation 4. That pulling people from every tongue, nation, and tribe. And weaving them together to be the new race. A new family that forever worships Jesus around the throne. That's what he's done. Not us. And so it dazzles the world around us, but even more, it dazzles the invisible rulers and authorities. Verse 8, this grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ, and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's manifold, multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then, I ask you, I ask you, not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory." He sent, Paul says, to preach the incalculable riches of Christ to the Gentiles, to speak of the mighty grace of Jesus. And he tells them at the very end, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged for what I have endured, for what I've suffered, for my afflictions, for being thrown in prison. Don't be discouraged. Actually, all these things are for your glory. So that's why I can say rejoice in my sufferings. I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? Because it's for their glory. It's for their joy. It's for their maturity. And so he's telling them, when you're hearing from me, when you're thinking about me, don't be discouraged about my present situation. I'm in prison because Jesus, that's why he says I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He didn't say I'm a prisoner of Rome. I'm not a prisoner of Caesar. It's that I follow Jesus and he's led me to this point and I'll stay here and stay faithful to him and rejoice in my sufferings because for all of you, it has meant your glory, your joy, your maturity. And then he says, this church is even greater than we can imagine. That we have such a low view of the church that we don't see her in all her beauty the church made up of Jews and Gentiles is making known the multi-faceted wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. What does that mean? <laughs> is he talking about Caesar? No. He's talking about one of the Herods? No. One commentator says that these rulers and authorities are probably both bad and good heavenly beings. 
go on. <laughs> he says, although the apostle's particular concern is obviously with hostile forces. Now, I think that's the case. I think that's the case. He's saying all the rulers and authorities, all the spiritual beings, all the angels, all the demons are viewing this. They're looking at the church, seeing the multifaceted wisdom of God. Angels are looking on and rejoicing. Demons are looking on in fear and trembling. Like, what? This is what God did? This was his plan? Commentators will also say that maybe the mystery was a mystery to the angels. And so their response is, what? We didn't know this. It was a truly a mystery for them. So for them to see it, for it to be unpacked before their eyes, they're responding just like they responded uh, at Jesus' birth announcement. Glory to God in the highest. Peace. Praise him. Hallelujah. That's their response to the multifaceted wisdom of God on display through the church. This is what he's done. This is what he's made. Jesus has defeated the evil forces at the cross. Now they're awaiting their fate. And now they look at the church in defeat, having to see the beauty and wisdom of God. John Stott says this, they watch fascinated as they see Gentiles and Jews being incorporated into the new society as equals. Love that. They're amazed by this. They They knew of the animosity. Do you know what I am convinced demons love to do? They love to energize bitterness and hatred. They love to come on, hear you with a little bit of bitterness, resentment in your heart, and they go, let's fan the flame. The church, though, this means that the church is so beautiful. It means the church is not an institution to dump on. It's a family to love. It's a people that God is using to preach a cosmic-sized sermon to all the spiritual rulers and authorities. You hear what I said? God is preaching a sermon through his church, through his bride. He's preaching it to the rulers and authorities, saying, this is God. Do you see how smart I am? I know more than you. And I know better than you. He's showing it off through us. His wisdom. That this was his creation, his initiation, that he thought it out and executed it. And this, the rulers and authorities all under, sub, uh, subjugated, underneath God are all saying, what? You did this? How'd you accomplish this? So it's not a place to just belittle. It's a family to love and treasure. It's Jesus' bride. The universal church is a diverse people, a many-colored fellowship, a multicultural, multi-ethnic fellowship who've been called, redeemed, forgiven, made alive, and united in Christ. And the angelic hosts look on at the powerful working of Christ, the powerful reconciling working of Christ, and say, What? Hallelujah. That's our guy. That's our hero. I don't know if they sing Foo Fighters, but that's what's happening. There goes our hero, right? That's what they're responding. And they're responding with joy and gratitude and with praise. And we're like, "Mm, whatever. And what I'm saying is, 
Paul's trying to catch us up into this. Did you see the last verse with me? I don't want you to be discouraged by this. I want you to be encouraged. Why? Because this is for your glory. Even your afflictions that you've endured yourself, God is even working in those for your glory, for your joy, for your good, for your holiness. That's what he's doing. We are who we are because God accomplished his plan. In the God-man Jesus, and he says here in Ephesians that Jesus is going to return. All things will be summed up in, and he's going to come and return and put the demonic horde and powers under his feet. And then with that last line of Paul, we just feel, oh, this is what he wants for us. This is what he's trying to get at. Why did he take a, a, a nine-verse Parenthetical remark. What was he trying to get at? Why did he say all this before he went to the prayer? It's because in Jesus, we Gentiles are co-heirs. So we're not to be discouraged. He asks us not to be discouraged. So he's saying, if you are discouraged about this, about what's happening, even about your sufferings, I encourage you to be encouraged I ask you to be encouraged, be grateful to see what Jesus has done and what he's made here. This doesn't make sense, right? Now, we're, we're, we're pretty homogenous, to be honest, right? But still, this doesn't make sense. I wouldn't hang out with most of you guys outside of Jesus. Why? Because I'm a jerk and I'm selfish and I don't like people. But because Jesus has saved me, I do. And I love, and I'm really grateful for this family that we're very different, different backgrounds, different thinking, whatever. But it's this wonderful tapestry that's been woven together by the chief sower, Jesus Christ himself. He's the one that's weaved us together. He's going to keep us together. So let's respond like the angels. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We're not going to walk out here discouraged. We're going to walk out here encouraged. Why? Because it's what he's done for us. So hallelujah. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We thank you for what you've done. And I, I pray that we'd also think about maybe the, the people, the men and women that have served that have sacrificed, that have been afflicted to minister to us, the people that have been hurt, worn down, that, that, that maybe traveled, or maybe gave up things to tell us about Jesus, or sacrificed, served, were called names, made fun of, maybe to protect us, shield us, from cynicism, Lord, whatever it is, I, I, I want us to consider and think and rejoice in what you've done for us in the past in our life with the men and women that you sent to speak to us, to help us, to point us to Jesus. And I, I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would sculpt I'm going to take our hearts in your hands and just sculpt us more and more this morning into a, a people of, of gratitude and joy, of praise, that your praise would be on our lips, 
on sunny mornings, but all the time. Because hallelujah, this is the Messiah who bled, who died for us, who's made us one, who's made us co-heirs with him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.